The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Thornton Wilder has said that a religion can last only until it wears its words out. There's one great word that lies at the center of the religion of our Lord. And yet I fear it may not mean as much to us as it should. We've sung it just now. I love thy kingdom, Lord. The word Lord appearing frequently in our New Testament from a word in the language of the New Testament, kurios, means master, sovereign, ruler, the one having authority, the one in the position of rulership and authority. And I want to emphasize today that he is Lord of the universe, that he is Lord of the church. The last song would suggest that. An earlier song would suggest the former idea, uh, as we've sung about Jesus, ruler of all nature. So he is Lord of the universe. He's Lord of the church. He is Lord of life and would be the Lord of your life. And I want today, before we close our study, to emphasize that he is the Lord of death and that he has sovereignty and power over what in the book of Job is called the king of terrors. He has sovereignty and power over death itself. He is, may I say it again, first of all, Lord of the universe. Brother Jack Wood Sears, who is chairman of the biology department at Harding College, was in 1967 speaking at a high school as the visiting science lecturer. He did this under the auspices of the National Academy of Science. And after an address in this particular high school, he was approached by a young man who said, Do you believe that man will go to the moon? This was in 1967. Brother Sears said, well, I don't know of anything that would necessarily keep him from it. He well may. And then the young man seemed a little bit disturbed and explained his concern and his disturbance by pointing out that a preacher of his acquaintance had affirmed that this would never be done, that God would not allow it, that that was not a part of his plan and purpose. And Brother Sears, in commenting on this, said, I wonder what happened to that young man on July the 20th, 1969, at about 10.56, Eastern Daylight Time, when Neil Armstrong set foot upon the moon. I remember preaching in the meeting in Akron, Colorado, in eastern Colorado, and learning there that a similar affirmation had been made. I want to say something today that I think is tremendously important and very timely. I feel no apprehension at all about what might be found on any planet or what might be produced in any test tube. Because my Lord is the Lord of the universe and the Lord of everything visible and invisible, and God's child need never feel his faith in peril, and God's child need never be fearful or apprehensive about what might be discovered, because, my friend, Jesus Christ is Lord of all and he's Lord of the universe. I want to call your attention to a great passage in the Colossian letter. 
Paul writing to people in Colossae and the Lycus Valley in an area that had become a kind of hotbed of heresy. There is a Jewish flavor to some of the problems there, but there also seems to be an early form of what comes to be known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics came to insist that matter is evil, that therefore the body is bad. The Gnostics also were inclined to view a number of mediators standing between man and God, eons and emanations between man and God. And they had some concept of an invisible realm. And Jesus would be relegated to a position of perhaps equality, but this would actually be inferiority for Jesus with others who stood between man and God, and he would be viewed by them perhaps as a created being. And uh, even the idea of the incarnation, certainly the incarnation of deity, would obviously be repugnant to the Gnostics. So Paul writes, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of our Lord, he's just talked about we've been delivered out of the power of darkness, translated out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love, the kingdom of God's dear Son. We have redemption through his blood and so on. And now, speaking of the Christ, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were all things made, in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were made through him and under him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he goes on to say he's the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he should have the preeminence. For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, bringing us from about verse 15 through verse 19 in Colossians chapter 1. I want you to particularly notice verses 15 and 16 and 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him were all things created, things visible, things invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, power. All things were made through him and unto him. And he's before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the image of the invisible God. From the word icon, Paul here expresses the idea that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us a full and precise revelation of the nature of God, for he himself is God divine. We have here something very similar to Hebrews 1 and 3. He there is described as the effulgence or the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person, the very image of his substance. What's, what is God like? Look to this, our Lord, who reveals the Father in fullness and precision. But now notice this. He is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? If you were to find yourself in conversation or discussion with one very persistent, an active materialistic cult of our day, you would find them saying that that means that he is the first created being. And in their New World translation in the next verse, they add a word and say, in him were all other things created, because they would see him as a created being, less than whole deity, less than eternal, and created. And this is the old Arian heresy from about the third century, 
that some have resurrected in our day. But firstborn does not mean priority in time, for he is eternal like the Father. And this is not speaking of him as a created being, for he is uncreated and life inherent. He's always been. This rather speaks in terms of primacy. For example, in Exodus 4 and 22, Israel is spoken of as my firstborn. God then speaks of the nation as my firstborn, not first in point of time, but first in terms of primacy and preeminence. In the 89th Psalm, we have a similar usage of the word firstborn. In the rabbinic writings, God the Father is referred to as the firstborn. Now, they understood that he is eternal and that he is uncreated. And they refer to the Father as firstborn in the sense of having primacy over all things. The New English Bible, by the way, has what is really a good rendering of this expression. His is the primacy over all created things. He is then the firstborn. The prototikos is the word of all creation in the sense that he has primacy, power over all creation. Through him were all things created. In him were all things created. Let us make man in our image. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Jesus Christ is active in creation, the agent of creation. And so in John chapter 1, we read of the word that was in the beginning with God, that was with God, that was God, that by him were all things made, and without him was not anything made. The Hebrews writer tells us, and thou, Lord, hast laid the foundation. Hebrews chapter 1, about verse 10. So our Lord Jesus is the creator of our universe, and let me add this, he is the sustainer of this universe. Our Lord is that one who, in the language of Hebrews 1 and 3, upholds all things by the word of his power. In a Sunday night lesson some weeks or months ago, I raised the question, what does Jesus have to do with the sunset? What does he have to do with the natural phenomena of our world? What does he have to do with what we call natural law? One of the older commentators, J.B. Lightfoot, in commenting on the statement here, in him all things consist, verse 17, that is, in him all things cohere, hold together, said that what we call the law of gravity is the expression of his mind. It is a Christocentric universe. He is the principle of cohesion in our universe. There's something tremendously comforting and consoling, strengthening and stabilizing, productive of stamina within us in this realization. And that is that back of it all is our Lord. That love and not just cold, impersonal law is back of it all and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's a cosmos and not a chaos because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is creator and because he is sustainer of the universe. He is then the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the object of all creation. Paul is saying, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17, this is the Lord, the Lord Jesus of whom we've sung, ruler of all nature, let it be understood then that our faith is not subject to what might happen within a test tube or what might be found on any planet or what man might do in his space probes. 
for our Lord is the Lord of it all. He created it all. He upholds it all. He sustains it all. Furthermore, very quickly, he is the Lord of the church. And in this very passage from Colossians 1, we read that he's the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, or that in all things, he should have the preeminence. In the Ephesians passage of Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, God has given Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The very preaching that produced the church was preaching which stressed, among other things, the lordship of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul said, we preach not ourselves. And let me pause parenthetically to say there's a real lesson here that we need. And the refusal to either see or to practice the lesson is a kind of repudiation of his lordship. To state it positively, or to state it differently at least, we do not preach ourselves. Paul said we preach not ourselves. We don't then come saying, look at us. Now, we need to live in such a way that we adorn the doctrine, Titus 2.10. We need to live in such a way that it's evident that we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all, that the church is exactly that. But it would have been rather foolish in Corinth to say, we want you to become a part of this Corinthian congregation because of the high degree of human excellence manifested by this group of people. The thing that made the people significant was the fact that this was the church of God at Corinth. And so we preach not ourselves, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, but Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we preach, Paul said. Not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, as kurios. You remember last Sunday morning we pointed out the pagan would say, Caesar kurios, Caesar is Lord. The Christian, though, preached. And he practiced and he confessed with his lips prior to his baptism and thereafter with both his lips and his life he confessed Jesus is Lord and he's Lord of the church. And so we don't ask what does the church teach about this or that or the other. For he's the head of the body of the church, Ephesians 1, 22, following Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 as we've noticed. And the body doesn't make the orders, the body takes the orders. And thus we do, do not ask a question that would imply what mandates have been made by the church, what decree, decrees have been made by the church. But we rather raise the question, what does Jesus teach? What in his word, this revelation? Remember Paul said, the gospel that I preached I received by revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, 11 and 12. Not just those words that appear in red letters in some edition, but this word in toto, in its entirety, even as it's clearly designated with regard to the last book in the 27 that we have here. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what does he teach? And with a profound reverence for him and a respect for his authority, we come to his word. And a number of questions that we might raise are important because they go back ultimately to the lordship of Jesus. How do we worship? What designations do we wear as a people? How are we to live? What really is the church to be? All of this must be resolved by Jesus Christ who is Lord of the church. But he would be Lord of our lives and this really is perhaps the most practical thing that we would have to say. We talked about this on last Lord's Day and I want to stress it again. In the fifth chapter of Luke we have some experienced professional fishermen who have fished fruitlessly. 
all the night and caught nothing as the account reads. I went out with Nathan and James Norman yesterday. I didn't expect to catch any fish. Frankly, I didn't think we'd catch any. And I, I was a pretty good predictor on that. Uh, we must have had a lot of rain and, and the water was muddy. We didn't catch any fish at all, but I wasn't surprised. That's what I expected. But these men were professional fishermen. These men knew how to fish. And the Lord says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. Peter said, Master, we fished all the night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word. And he uses this word, master, closely akin to, suggestive of, some of those great concepts resident in the word, Lord, kurios. You're the master. You're the sovereign. You're the ruler. And at thy word, we'll let down the net. And you remember the miraculous ingathering of fishes. The nets began to break. And the lordship of our, Je of our Lord Jesus Christ is evident here. And Peter, by the way, reacts as men do when confronted with deity and with the lordship of Jesus. Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And yet may I say, my friend, the very best place for a sinful man to be is close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the important thing about his lordship to us is not simply that he's lord and ruler of all nature, though that's very important, and that's a Bible concept. And it carries with it a tremendous comfort. And it frees us from a lot of fears. The important thing, the really important thing today is that he be Lord of our lives. And that we say of all the fruitless fishing that we've done, all the toiling through the night, out of our own pride and ego drive, Master, we've toiled all the night, we've caught nothing, but nevertheless at thy word, at thy word, recognizing you as master, as sovereign, as Lord, we're going to let you take over in our lives. It's not uncommon for preachers and for missionaries to say, well, I prayed about this particular venture or this particular work or this particular move. But why shouldn't every Christian prayerfully deal with every move and with each venture you know, the parent is concerned about everything in the life of the child. The child sometimes thinks, yes, he's too concerned or she's too concerned about everything. But it's quite true, the parent is. The real parent who is the kind of parent that he or she ought to be is particularly concerned about the salvation of the child. But the parent is concerned about the physical health of the child. And the parent is concerned about the educational development and program for the child. And the, the parent is concerned about each relationship. And our Lord would be Lord of our lives in every area. And a statement has been made, and I hope it has not become a kind of trite cliche because it pictures something that is profoundly true and very, very important. He must be Lord of all or he'll not be Lord at all. The thing that I've got to do, whether it's in the choice of a date or mate, whether it's in the choice of a life's work, whether it's in the choice of where I might go or where I might serve or how I might serve, whatever the decision, there ought to be the prayerful determination that I'll be submissive to his will. And a reading of his word and prayer and a submission to his working, a trust in his providence, all of this ought to be brought to bear upon the particular question, whatever it is. How tragic it is that some of us would seek to own his lordship in song and in worship as we have today, but on Monday through Saturday in business or in our schoolwork 
or when test day comes or in some of these decisive choices, we say, in effect, I'll handle this all by myself. But he calls for surrender. There's a strange kind of ritual that goes on when in the animal kingdom wolves fight over territorial rights. When one has been clearly defeated, he will purposely expose his jugular vein to his opponent. And then, strangely, the opponent will turn away and let the vanquished one go free. When he has finally surrendered, in effect, and made himself vulnerable. And the Lord calls us to the acceptance of his lordship in a way that would give up that which is most cherished and would open our lives with a great vulnerability to his lordship and say, in effect, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth, command, and he will obey. I'm staggered when I read about the case of Abraham, when I read Genesis chapter 22, for example, when I hear God saying, Take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, and get up into one of the mountains in the land of Moriah that I'll show thee, offer him there. The question comes from the lips of Isaac, Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And the answer comes from one whose heart must have been indescribably heavy. God will provide. But when he shows his willingness, though God, of course, stays his hand before the life of Isaac is taken, but when he shows his willingness not to withhold his son, his only son, then he demonstrates a spirit of surrender that Paul in Romans 4 and Bible writers elsewhere, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, would say, this is faith. This is the real spirit of faith. This is saying, in effect, Lord, do with me as you would. We said a moment ago that he is Lord of death. This is something that concerns us. William Bryant was in his teens when he wrote Thanatopsis and wrote about death. This is indicative of the fact that very early in life we're aware of the fact that we must make exit from this life. And he's the Lord of death, and I'm grateful for that. Human power and human resources are not enough when it comes to death. But we read this of him, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He died to bring to naught to destroy him that had the power of death and to deliver them, verse 15 of Hebrews 2, who all their lives were subject to the fear of death, all their lifetime subject to that particular fear. William Randolph Hearst said, don't mention death in my presence. Oscar Levant, the musician, said, don't use the word in my hearing, but it's appointed unto men once to die. And yet Jesus is the Lord of death. He's sovereign over death. He brought life and immortality to life. Through the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. He's the one who in John 11, at the graveside of Lazarus, could say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's the one who in Revelation 1, 17 and 18 could say, I'm the living one and was dead and am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And thus life does not dead end in a dreamless sleep from which there's no awakening. Life does not dead end in a cemetery. Life is real and life is earnest, but the grave is not its goal, as the poet put it. And our Lord Jesus Christ, being declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection 
from the dead, Romans 1 and 4, is the Lord, the sovereign, the master of death itself, and he can say, I have the keys, suggestive of authority and power. I have the keys of death and Hades. And the fact that he, and in view of the fact that he is Lord of our universe, ruler of all nature, in view of the fact that he is creator and sustainer and object of all creation and of all things visible and invisible, in the awareness of the fact that he is the head of the body of the church, that he is the firstborn from the dead, that expression not meaning simply first to die, never to experience death again, but having primacy over death itself. As firstborn of creation means primacy and power over all creation, firstborn from the dead suggests a primacy over death. And thus, with a view to the fact that he is Lord of life and Lord of death, you see, my friend, how critical it is that you own his lordship. It makes the difference between a hopeless end or an endless hope. It means the difference between a life without power and purpose or a life filled with meaning and a life drawn and dominated by a high sense of purpose. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul writes, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not to be in on equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If I understand the, later, the latter part of this great passage, Paul looks to the time that this one who emptied himself and became obedient unto death now even is highly exalted, and he looks to the time when there will be the universal acknowledgement of his sovereignty. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if that understanding be correct, my friend, the question is not, will you confess Jesus as Lord? For, friend, you will. But the question is, when will you confess him as Lord? Will you even now confess with the mouth Jesus as Lord unto salvation? Romans 10, 9 and 10 or will it be in that great day when he comes and his universal lordship and sovereignty is acknowledged, but the time of preparation and probation will be passed? His lordship will be acknowledged. Would you confess it now? Would you make him lord of your life? Would you put him at the very center? Would you let him be at the crux and the core and the heart of your entire life? Would you say, in effect, speak, Lord, thy servant here, command, and he will obey, and there's not a part or portion of my life that will be held out to be dominated by self, but I'm opening it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarm when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong will be my hand. That's what his lordship can mean. And we're pleading with you to trust him to turn from sin and turn to him, to confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord, to be buried with him by baptism into death, and to rise from that liquid grave in Christ Jesus, thereafter to confess with your life as well as with your lips, Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. Won't you come to him now while we stand and sing?